Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about the annoying yellow smiley face. No, 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 no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Before we bring on our guest today, I want to invite you to join our conversation live by calling us at 877-864-4869. Again, that's 877-864-4869. You can log into our chat room at toginet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen or HH Talk Radio or tweet at us during the show with the hashtag harvesting happiness. All right, let's get to it because we have got a fantastic show lined up today on one of my favorite subjects, and that is mindfulness and the power of possibility. Our first guest is Dr. Mario Martinez, who is a licensed clinical neuropsychologist, and we're going to get him to explain what that is, as well as the founder of the Biocognitive science. He specializes in how cultural and transcendental beliefs affect our health and longevity. His biocognitive theory is based on discoveries in neuroscience research with healthy brains and psychoneuroimmunology investigations of exalted emotions such as love, compassion, empathy, and dignity, all things we love around here. Biocognition offers an integrated paradigm that brings together mind-body research and cultural anthropology. Dr. Martinez is considered a world expert on stigmata as well, and we'll we'll touch a little bit upon that, which are the Christ-like wounds that do not heal and are resistant to infection. He's been consulted on these rare cases by the Catholic Church, the BBC, National Geographic, and the Discovery Channel. Welcome, Dr. Martinez. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate oh, it. 
month. A pleasure, a pleasure. Let's let's first just give the uh, the layperson's definition of neuropsychology. Just the one liner. <laughs> yes, it's uh, something between neurology and psychology. How um, psychological processes affect the brain, and how uh, brain illnesses affect the psychology of the person. And it's that simple. It is that simple, but it is a a, a fairly new frontier, I would say. <laughs> Especially the the healthy mind, uh, the healthy brain, because uh, when I studied neuropsychology, it was studying how what happens when the brain breaks. If something breaks, if if there's a stroke or if it's a part of the brain that has damage and something doesn't work, then the conclusion was, okay, that's what the brain does in that part of of, of the brain. And it's not like that. When we study the healthy brain, it has a range rather than an on and off work, no work. So it's expanded the possibilities of the brain, but it's also expanded the hope that the plasticity that the brain has, the ability that it has to, to adjust to the problems and to adjust to context uh, can make a tremendous difference where before it was thought that, uh, well, if you have this family uh, history or if you have this kind of brain damage, then that's all you can do. And all you can do is be diagnosed. It doesn't work like that. It's much, much better. It is much better, and I want to just touch for a minute on on plasticity or neuroplasticity, which for lay people is really about teaching an old dog new tricks. You know, it's <laughs> that the, the, the brain can be actually rewired and reprogrammed through training. Exactly, and, and the, a thought, a belief system can actually change the uh, the chemistry of the brain, but not not a belief system at, at the uh, as you were saying earlier in, in the program the uh, the smiley face not not that it it has to be an embodied experience and I'll talk about that that actually can change brain chemistry our our environments our thinking can change a brain chemistry just like brain chemistry can change our thoughts so it's a mind body uh, in interconnectedness that cannot be separated. And this brings us to biocognitive science. And tell us about a little bit more about the mind-body connection in the cultural context. What's happened with uh, psychoneuroimmunology, which studies uh, how thoughts and emotions affect the nervous and other systems, is that that it's been studying uh, these kinds of interactions in laboratories, void of culture. And the assumption is that if you have an infection in uh, New York, it's going to be the same as an infection in, in the Amazon. And it doesn't work that way. The culture is what dictates how the immune function is going gonna, is gonna to respond. So if you have, for example, an infection in, in Brooklyn, you go to your doctor and he'll give you a or she'll give you a, an antibiotic and you're fine. But if let's say you have an infection in, in somewhere in the Amazon where the belief system is that if you have an infection around a, a bad spirit – the bad spirit gets into your um, into your cut, and uh, you're not going to be able to be healed. You're going to need a lot more antibiotics because the fear suppresses immune function. So you're going to need more antibiotics, and in some cases, it, it won't even affect it because of the belief system. This is fascinating. I actually never thought about that, that the, the same virus or the same bacteria, if it lands in two different places, that the, the reaction to it or how it's treated is different. Depending on what the authority says, the the, the authorities in, in context are very powerful. A doctor in a clinic, uh, a teacher in school, parents, and so forth. And they teach us, and those symbols they teach you become what I call biosymbols. Don't go out in the rain. Rain is a symbol, right? But if you're told, don't go out in the rain because you'll catch a cold, that symbol of the rain becomes a something as bad as seeing a lion. It goes into a part of the brain called the amygdala, and that triggers fear which triggers 
then the immune suppression. So you go out in the rain and you'll catch whatever is, is going on there. And your mom says, see, I told you the rain is bad for you. You go somewhere else and you go out in the rain and you get wet. That's it. It, you know, this this makes me think of you know what I what I say to people all the time. You cannot believe everything you think, see, and hear. Exactly. You have to you have to question your tribe. You have to question the authorities that told you that you're not good with directions or you're not good with math and things that that become a reality for you. And then if you're not good with math and you're told that and you happen to do well in school in math and you say, oh, that's just luck. And if you do badly, you say, well, that's what it is because I'm bad in math. So, so you basically confirm what your culture – I call them culture editors because they edit your life. What they tell you, you confirm it. So what I try to do is to help people break from that to challenge those authorities that told you things that, that, that are not SAR, and, but then with good science to be able to modify that. I love what you just said about cultural editors, and this is really about the work. It's really about deciding. There's a certain amount of empowerment that comes with all of, with all of this, and the the frontier of neuroscience and what we're learning about the brain and our ability to reprogram and retrain the brain actually gives us quite a bit of power that we once the, gave away. Of course, uh, we we you see we borrowed uh, biology. Unfortunately, borrowed a model from. Uh, from Newtonian physics, from reductionist physics, which is great with carburetors and planets, but not with <laughs> living beings. <laughs> and it doesn't work. It doesn't work well. Well, uh, you know, the one thing you can re- relate back to the carburetor is that if you don't take care of the, of the car, the vehicle that is holding this carburetor, that things will go wrong. You know, that we have to, we have to mind the vessel, so to speak. Yes, exactly. And, and, but every, uh, what, what happens with, the, with that type of biology is that it tells you, you you are a product of your genes. You are what your family genes uh, have uh, endowed you. And it's not that. Genes are just a propensity, not a sentence. And that's very important. Uh, a lot of studies that are done are based on, on reductionistic biology, which says, uh, well, if you have this uh, gene and, and your parents had diabetes and you're going to have diabetes, two things happen. Number one, it's bad science. Number two, you live up to it because you, then rather than taking care of yourself, the fear of the inevitable will make you do all the wrong things that will trigger the propensity. You'll start eating uh, carelessly because you'll say, uh, well, you know, if it's diabetes in the family, what am I going to do about it? It's a helplessness. What you were talking about, the, the, the opposite of empowerment. Uh, ex- exactly. And uh, we're, we're going to go to a break in a minute. When we come back, we're going to carry on this conversation because I want to jump into longevity. I want to jump into the immune system, to addiction a little bit. To learn more about Dr. Mario Martinez and his work, please visit www.bio cognitive.com and that's b-i-o-c-o-g-n-i-t-i-v-e.com again that's biocognitive.com on twitter he is at biocognitive one the number one and on facebook dr mario martinez is at the mind body code and that's all one word the four four words are just strung together and you've got an upcoming workshop in the los angeles area and quickly we've got about a minute left before we go to break tell us what the date is and how people can obtain tickets or or, our entrance uh, it's going to be November 8th and 9th, so it's going to be a two-day uh, workshop. And uh, just by going to the, web- to the website you mentioned, biocognitive.com, they can uh, get all the information and, and register online. And what I'm going to do in this workshop, it's called 
how to transcend your fear horizons is teach, number one, that illnesses are learned. Number two, that the causes of health are inherited. So mm. those two things are really going to be the key of what we're going to be covering. So for professionals and anyone who wants to really use biocognition as, as personal development and to begin to defy the myths that, that can kill you. We are going to go to a break, and when we return, there will be more with Dr. Mario Martinez and our subject matter today, Mindfulness and the Power of Possibility. Here come the tunes, and we will be right back. That's a promise. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to fight. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress-Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking about mindfulness and the power of possibility with Dr. Mario Martinez, who I failed to mention in the first segment is coming to us from Uruguay in South America today. And we are grateful that he is in the house so welcome back, Dr. Martinez. Let's jump into longevity and how biocognitive science and uh, neuropsychology relate to living longer. What, what uh, interested me very much was not just longevity, but healthy longevity, happy longevity, uh, because uh, to be around not, not healthy and not happy is really not, not worth it. So what good science does is rather than studying what doesn't work and create theories about that, I think good science, and, and biocognitive I include in that, is that it goes to what works and then looks for theories. So I went to centenarians, people who are over 100 all over the world. They're the fastest growing segment of the population in the United States. There are 80,000 centenarians. And uh, what I found was that it wasn't genetics, as I had uh, imagined from my 
reductionistic training. Uh, it, genetics may be anywhere from, from 20 to 25, 30% at most, in some cases even less. What I found with these people is that they defied the conventional thinking and the conventional gerontology that growing older is a deterioration, that aging equals uh, illnesses, not like that at all. So what I found is that what I call the difference between aging and growing older. Growing older, all you need is time. Aging is what you do with that time based on what the culture tells you you should do. And what these centenarians do is they don't buy the cultures. Uh, they don't uh, – if you ask them, uh, uh, what, uh, what are your plans for the future? And they could be 102. Say, well, I have a garden right now, but wait till you see it in 10 years. <laughs> 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 they live in the present with, with future orientation. They're not in the future, but they live with hope. Um, if you, and, and I'm not advocating this, but I'm just reporting it as a psychologist, anthropologist. Uh, you ask them, when was the last time you went to the doctor? And they'll say, uh, some of them will say, well, not, I haven't been in a while. There's nothing wrong with me. What about a checkup? What do I need to check if everything's fine? So I'll ask them, so what does your doctor say about it? I don't know. They're all dead. This is great. This is really terrific because it is a it, once again it's a it's a perception. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of how we view life and living and aging. And from what you're saying, is it uh, it's it's also a decision. It's a, it's an active participation in the process. You know, we're choosing to show up to continue to live and not be defined by what our driver's license or our passport says. You know, in, in terms of age. Exactly. And, and then uh, the conclusion is that, that longevity can be learned. It's a learned process, not a genetic uh, uh, um, completed decision. It, it's a process of – so what I do is I teach people what the centenarians taught me. One of the things that they do, for example, is they don't believe in middle age what I call the cultural portals, a middle-age portal, the, the old-age portal. You don't see an 80-year-old uh, advertising uh, a Porsche you see them advertising diapers and and uh, and, and medications, <laughs> and it's, it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> no. Uh, and and uh, and the re- and those are those are culture portals. So let's say if you're 44, and in your culture, uh, 45 is middle age. The day before you weren't 40, you weren't a middle age. When you turn 45, the next day you're middle age. You've gone into a portal supported by a culture that tells you you're middle age. Uh, I want to go back to college. No, you got to be thinking about retirement, not back to college. Your kids say, well, "Why are you wearing that? You're too old for that," and they mold you into the portal, and you begin to age based on the portal, not on your biology. Well, it's the societal constraints. It's what the media tells us, what others tell us, that then actually what you're suggesting alters our, our physiology. It does. Not uh, only our perception, it, but ha- our health. Our health because the, the cultures are too powerful. The, the cultural editors are too, too powerful. And you don't, you're not aware that you're getting hit with that all day with the media, with the uh, medication, with, uh, with the fashions, with everything. And you don't realize that the culture is so subtle but so insidious in the power that it has that you don't know it's making biological changes on, on a daily basis. Now, let's talk for a second. I'm going to throw in epigenetics because we, we could go on for hours about this. But let's talk a little bit about the role that this plays in um, how we see our health in the future. You know where science is moving. 
Well, uh, yes, epigenetic is is, uh, is fairly new science. It, it's looking, it's going beyond the thinking that uh, that there's a genetic uh, uh, determinism, and that uh, the environment can actually make uh, genetic uh, changes uh, in the expression. It, it doesn't change DNA, but it changes the expression of the genes. And uh, for example, we all everything that we have in our body every protein is is programmed through our dna and our and our genes with the exception of two interesting cells the b cells and the t cells the receptors of the antibodies for the b cells and uh, and, and and the receptors for the t cells are actually created epigenetically and the reason is so they can have some randomness so that if if the genes or the dna forgets about something they can respond to the new conditions completely epigenetically. Mm, fascinating. So it's a beautiful system. It is. It Indeed it is. Let's talk about other afflictions or challenges that we experience in our health, such as attention deficit disorder, obesity, um, addiction, and how the biocognitive scientific process or theories apply to working with these issues. Well, it's quite controversial, but I'm, I'm providing uh, scientific evidence. I believe, for example, when we medicalize living conditions and we medicalize the um, adjustment to changes in life, then we create attention deficit disorder out of abundance curiosity. These kids have abundance curiosity. Since we don't know how to deal with that, then we label it into a deficit, and they don't have attention deficit. They have a curiosity abundance. You notice that kids, when they have attention deficit disorder and they like a video game, the attention deficit ends and they can play for hours. They have a high level of novelty that the classroom doesn't give them, so it's easier to to, uh, medicate and to put them into a, a, a framework that says this is what's wrong with you instead of what can we do with that ability that you have to adjust to all the major changes that are going on, the, the excess information. So that's an example. Uh, the other example is that, uh, that, that illnesses are learned. There's a learned process in, in, in an illness. There's a learned process in, in fibromyalgia and lupus and autoimmune illnesses. Not learning it intellectually, but your conduct can teach the immune system to do something, the nervous system to do something, the, the endocrine system to do something. So as you're learning bad behavior, you're teaching your biology bad behavior. Then at the end, 10 years later, there's a, a critical mass, and all of a sudden, it's called into an illness rather than a learning process. Mm. And, and addiction, let's just touch upon that because this is, this is huge. You know, the addiction business, at least in the United States, the recovery, the rehabilitative uh, industry is, is gigantic here. Yes, uh, addiction is not an illness. Obesity is not an illness. These are dysfunctional culture learnings. They're not illnesses. Uh, you, don't, you don't get up in the morning and you say, well, today I'm not going to have my cancer. And you can do that with alcoholism. I'm not going to drink today, so I don't have my, my alcoholism, although they still call you an alcoholic, which I think is a mistake. You're more than an alcoholic. You're a person. When you abuse, you're an alcoholic. Uh, it's not an illness, and, and, and I, I don't think we'll have time to really uh, cover it, but, uh, but I will cover that in the, in, in, the, uh, in the workshops. The reason that the recidivism rate is so high and the reason the failure is so high is because it's treated like an illness. And what you're treating is the effect rather than the cause. Obesity is not, is not an addiction. It's a compulsion. And obesity is a distraction from self-worthiness. And I've done a lot of work with obese. I've worked with more than 2,500 uh, addicts. And so I'm not just coming from, I'm coming from, from, from clinic. 
and looking at what doesn't work. What I do with, with obese people, uh, they're, not, they're not obese as an illness. They're people who happen to be obese. I teach them how to love food. And the first thing they say is, well, how can, I, how can you teach me that? I love food too much. They need food. You don't mm. abuse what you love. You abuse what you need. So we, and if you measure success by weight loss, big mistake. You, mes- you measure success by learning to be less distracted from the things that you need to do in your life. And you measure, measure success by the level of worthiness that the person uh, uh, gains. And then the weight indirectly reduces. But by the way, if you're slightly overweight and healthy, uh, you're going to live longer than if you're slightly underweight and healthy. So it's a lot of no. I've heard. I've heard that. I've heard that. That it's better to have a little cushion. You know, better to have a a few curves on you. (laughs) And keep keep, yes, and keep moving. (laughs) You know, I think that that you know to be the ability to exercise um, is what keeps us supple and lithe and keeps all of the uh, the synovial fluid moving through the body, and it just makes. Uh, aging a graceful process, you know, not yes. one that is predestined to pain and a cane. Of course, which, and, and, and I think – oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. We, we, we only have a couple more minutes, so we're, we're going to have to just have another conversation in, in, a, in a few months and have you back. So we'll get through as much as we can because I have so many questions for you. But yes, aging. Um, so the, the aging process, again, going back, is the culture will tell you how you're going to age. Uh, the culture will tell you what the portals are, and the th- most important thing to remember is that uh, there's several things that, that I can tell you right now about centenarians. They know how to forgive. That's very important. They, they, they see forgiveness as an act of self-love to liberate themselves. It's not even for the other person. It's to liberate yourself from, from the weight and the power that you've given to someone else. The other thing that they have is they have the ability to be resilient. Uh, I asked uh, a, um, a centenarian, 103-year-old centenarian who lost his vision when he was 102, and he was studied by some, some scientists, and they were asking him, well, you must have gotten very depressed when you uh, turned 102. And they don't overlook it. They said, yes, uh, it, it upset me for a few days, but then later I realized that now that I can't see, when I see a woman, I have to touch her first before I know who she is. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so, it's the and the women will say the same thing. It's not chauvinistic. The women will say I have to touch a man before. So it, that's resilience with a tremendous sense of humor. Oh, it's, it's resilience. It's humor. It's reframing. It's transcending the negative, the negative experience into one that offers an opportunity for growth. And we'll talk with Dr. Ellen Langer about that in the next segment. But this, you have been uh, uh, just an absolute joy to have on the show. And we will, we will do over. So to learn more about Dr. Mario Martinez and his wonderful work in neuropsychology and biocognition, you can go to www.biocognitive.com. On Twitter, he is at Biocognitive1, and that is the number one. And on Facebook, it's the Mind Body Code, all together, four words, woven together, the Mind Body Code. And his workshop in the Los Angeles area is um, November 8th and 9th, and you can find out more about that by going to biocognitive.com. Here come those tunes. Stay with us. We will be right back. And you are having a great day, I hope, Dr. Martinez. Thank you very much. I think oh. you're going to enjoy Ellen very much. Oh, we've had her on. We're, we're welcoming her back with open arms. Have a great day. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Thank Pleasure. You. Bye-bye. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. 
We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. likes to win, enter our weekly contests at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook where we give away our guests books, music, film, and products each week. In addition, we also do great Harvesting Happiness giveaways like free coaching sessions with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Lisa's books, Happiness First Aid Kits, H-Factor Where Is Your Heart documentary film, Happiness is an inside job products, including the Sterling Silver Infinity Bracelet that benefit Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, a nonprofit whose mission is to assist our returning military personnel and their loved ones challenged by combat trauma and other post-deployment reintegration issues. Join us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, please download this podcast because we are talking about mindfulness and the power of possibility. And my next guest is Dr. Ellen Langer. She's been with us before and we are happy to have her back again. Dr. Langer is a Yale PhD, Harvard professor of psychology and an artist. She is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and three distinguished scientist awards, the World Congress Award, the NYU Alumni Achievement Award, and the Stats Award for Unifying Psychology. She's authored 11 books, over 200 research articles on the illusion, with the emphasis on illusion, people, of control, (laughs) perceived control, successful aging, decision-making, and these are just a few of the topics that she is quite scholarly on. Each of these is, uh, is examined through the lens of her theory of mindfulness. Her research has demonstrated that by actively noticing new things, the essence of mindfulness, health, well-being, and confidence follow. And we'll get into the books later. But welcome, Dr. Langer. Thanks for being here again. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you have your, your latest book, Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility, is now aligned and coming alive with a retreat. And that's what I'm just so delighted to introduce to our listeners. Let's talk about it. December 5th in San Miguel Allende. (laughs) 
<laughs> we put off the date until early March, but um, it's a wonderful opportunity now. Thank you for it. So I don't know how many of your listeners know of the original research. We did this a while ago. Basically, we had retrofitted a retreat to 20 years earlier and had people in their 80s, and that, I should say, was when 80 was 80, not the new 60. So these people were really old, lived uh, for the week as if it was 20 years earlier. They spoke about the past in the present tense, and in all ways, it was that earlier date. And what we found is that this experience uh, resulted in an improvement in vision, hearing, they looked younger, their cognitive abilities improved, and their physical strength. It was, it was something to behold, I must say. And um, it was recently replicated with British celebrities by the BBC, and most recently in uh, South Korea, so very different populations. So it seems that the findings are robust. So then it occurred to us that it's probably time to make this more generally available. And so uh, the Entrepreneurial Chamber of Commerce that I didn't know existed offered uh, to help with this venture. And uh, we're going to hold these retreats in San Miguel Allende. Anybody who's interested, by the way, can just go on the new website. It's called LangerMindfulnessInstitute.com, LangerMindfulnessInstitute.com, and can read about it. And um, in addition to taking people back in time with respect to age, we have lots of research that's going on right now where uh, we're taking people with various diseases. So we have research that's soon to begin with women with breast cancer, um, people returning vets who have post-traumatic stress, um, and we'll be doing one with um, multiple sclerosis, all taking people back in time and then showing them how to be more mindful going forward. And as uh, the findings come out, and I assume and hope uh, um, you know, that we will keep replicating this effect, then we'll make this more and more available to people. So the whole idea is very exciting for me. As um, you mentioned before, that I've done research now for, gosh, over 30 years, a long time, where we've taught people to be mindful, we've given them perceived control, and we've gotten health effects that range from things like um, uh, pregnant women being taught to be mindful. We have healthier uh, neonatal outcomes, people with chronic um, pain and arthritis taught to be mindful, show a, a reduction in um, their symptoms, and so on. Um, and eventually, what I hope is that all of this work, there's so much that I've done so far and that we have uh, in progress at the moment, that we will eventually come away with a very different view of health and health care than the medical model that is uh, most popular at the moment. Um, I think most of your listeners are aware that placebos for example, are very strong medication. And so I've looked closely at what is actually going on when you take a placebo. First, <clears throat> we have to have some authority give you this pill. The pill is just a sugar pill, right? For it to be a placebo means it's inert. It has no active drug in it. You take it and you improve. Symptoms from virtually all diseases for a third of the people who have the disorders 
um, show improvements. And you look closely at it, and I say, well, wait a second. If it's not the pill, because it's a placebo making people better, what's actually making people better? And it's clearly we ourselves are doing it. And so lots of my work is designed to make this control much more direct. Why do we need a physician, an authority person? Why do we need a pill when we're doing all the work anyway? And so um, we have many sorts of interventions that are very simple. I'll give you an example. That being mindful is just noticing things. It's nothing more than that. And by noticing changes, or as we say, noticing variability in our symptoms, several things happen. The first thing is we come to see that these symptoms don't stay the same, that sometimes they're a little better, sometimes they're a little worse, sometimes we don't even have the symptoms. And by recognizing these changes, it gives rise to the question, well, why? What's happening right now um, to explain why it is that these symptoms have lessened or even disappeared? And then people go on a search, we find in these studies, go on a search for, well, what's causing this? What's different about it? I'll give you an example in a moment. And two things happen with that. When you go on this search, you tend to be more mindful. And as I said, that this act of noticing, this act of thinking is good for our health. But then it's also the case when you're seeking these solutions, you very well may find it. So let's say that I have asthma. Most people who are given a chronic diagnosis believe that's it. They're always going to have it. So they don't pay any attention. So we take these people and we make them pay attention to changes. We might call you periodically. One can do this for oneself as well. And the question is, are you experiencing it right now? And if not, uh, if you are, is it better or worse than the last time? And um, you know, perhaps you're not experiencing it. And then the question becomes why. So let's say that when I am talking to Lisa, say I have asthma, and when I'm talking to Lisa, now all of a sudden I notice I don't have any symptoms. I don't need that inhaler. But when I'm talking to, oh, we shouldn't do this, but to Mario. Martin, oh, poor Mario. Like, oh, he was just your guest, yes. And I'm very fond of him. That's why I feel free to abuse him now. But let's say when I'm talking to Mario, I need the inhaler. Well, as soon as I realize that, several things happen. The first is... I see that, gee, I don't need it all the time, so the condition that I have isn't as bad as I thought it was, and that feels good. The second, now that I know I don't need it when I'm talking to you, Lisa, but I need it when I talk to him, means that I have a potential solution. Either stop talking to him or make my interactions with him more like they are with you. It's the case for all chronic illness. People presume they have it all the time, when you presume you have something all the time, you don't actively attend to it. It would be silly, right? Because it's always going to be there, so why, why pay attention? It's always going to be the same. But nothing stays the same. So when we nothing attend to the, the variability... Same. I'm sorry? No, I was when just going to the. I just want to yeah, jump in here for one sec because we're going we're gonna to actually be going to a break in a couple of minutes. And I wanted to just uh, bring up the subject matter of belief systems and how our beliefs and our perceptions play into this mindfulness process yeah. and about how we can learn to be better witnesses of life. Because, you know, we're not, yes. we don't, we're not trained to do this, actually. Our, our parents actually train us and learn helplessness. Right. For the most part, it's it's an it's an act, a skill that we acquire. Some parents, through, 
Some parents, exactly. It's, it's a skill that we acquire through life. And how do we cultivate that uh, more fully to be more mindful, to be more aware, to learn how to listen and see more fully? Do you want me to respond now or are we going to break? I, you may respond now. We have, we have oh, a couple okay. of minutes. <laughs> and then you can take off in the next segment and I'll sit back and sip my tea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, essentially, the world, our parents, our schools, teach us to be mindless. And the way they do that, in part, is to teach us to look for absolutes, for certainties. And again, once you're certain about something, you don't pay any attention any longer. An example I'm fond of using is, as being a, a very, very good student, I knew... Uh, I, I knew certain facts, right? I was at this horse event, and this man asked me to watch his horse because he wanted to get him a hot dog. Well, I know horses don't eat meat. I memorized that, right? I got that on the test correct, and so on. Anyway, he comes back with the hot dog, and the horse ate it. And that was very meaningful to me because I said, what does it mean, horses don't eat meat? How many horses were tested? How ha- hungry were the horses? How big were they? How much meat mixed with how much grain, and so on. Um, and the point is that these are the hidden decisions in research. Research turns out probabilities, and those probabilities are taught to us as absolute facts. And everybody wants to know these absolute right answers, thinking that then they have more control over the world. But since these absolutes are a myth, what ends up happening is by having all these certainties, we end up with less control, and we become guided without any awareness that we're being guided by these, by these certainties. So when we come back from the break, I, I will try to make that clearer for you. Perfect. And to learn more about Dr. Ellen Langer and her work, you can visit the LangerMindfulnessInstitute.com. On Twitter, she is at Ellen JL, and that's J like Jenny and L like love. And on Facebook, it's Ellen Langer, and that's L-A-N-G-E-R. Are. And her workshop, the, the doors will open in San Miguel Allende, Mexico in March. And you too can have a counterclockwise experience by heading down south and joining Dr. Langer and her colleagues down there. And when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation about mindfulness, the power of mindful learning on becoming an artist, because Dr. Langer is an artist. And I want to talk about that as well. Here come the tunes. We will be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. 
Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about mindfulness and the power of possibility. And we're also talking about mindfulness and the aging process. And I'm here today with Dr. Ellen Langer, and she is sharing with us her most recent book, which is Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibilities, and um, some research that she has done about taking people who are either aging or who are going through health challenges and placing them in a situation, let's say, that is 20 years in, in the past, prior to aging, prior to injury, prior to challenges. And when they are living in that environment, experiencing life as it was, as if it were in the present moment in a mindful state, that a lot of the symptoms are disappearing. The quality of life improves. And I would love, Dr. Langer, for you to expound upon this in the context of aging and why this is important to aging. Well, I think that many of the beliefs we have about aging are myths and that lots of my research um, addresses uh, ways that we can renew, regain the strength and vitality that we had in the past. You know, you have... um, uh, some ideas, like let's say memory, everybody worries that their memory goes as you get older. And there's some memory loss, but not nearly as great as people fear. Much of what's going on is a change of values, uh, a change of circumstances. So, for example, let's say you know, you're a student and you're living in um, one room. All right. Now, somebody says to you, where is your ex, whatever, you're not your ex-lover, your, your um, <laughs> pen, whatever it is you're looking for. Well, you know where it is. Now, let's go fast forward, and let's say you're of means. So now, not only do you have that room, but you have two houses, and each house has many rooms. Well, trying to find that pen is a whole different ballgame. You see what I'm saying that, you know, you know many more things. You have many more possibilities. Maybe a better example is, um, let's say you're retired. So if you're retired and you're still invited to the company picnic, uh, you get one invitation. You put it down, perhaps mindlessly, so you don't know where it is. If you are at work, every few days somebody is talking about the picnic and somebody is asking, what are you bringing or when are you going, or can I get a ride, and so on, and there's this big poster up, and so on. The point being that you have one reminder, the younger person now 20 reminders. 
So when you forget and they don't forget, I don't think it has anything to do with age. There are things that uh, we accuse the old of. Um, we say that the old have difficulty paying attention. Without pain, uh, giving any thought to what we're asking people to attend to. So if you have um, oh, a show, let's say, that's about 20-somethings that's not particularly good, a 20-something might enjoy it. If they enjoy it because it's relevant to their lives, um, it's easy to pay attention. For the older person who doesn't even have grandchildren that age, who just, you know, been there, done that, they just don't care, that it's the not caring that is assumed to be a lack of an ability to pay attention. Now, and we've done studies. We take people who have an attention deficit disorder. We take the old. And we also take Harvard students who are supposed to be so good that you can improve their performance. And we ask one group of each to pay attention to something that we show them. We have another group where we teach them to mindfully attend, which means to notice new things about the target of their attention. And what happens is that across the board, whether you have presumably this attention deficit disorder, or you're old, or you're even a Harvard student, everybody, when taught to be mindful, shows vast improvement. Um, the old are, um, are misunderstand in numerous ways. You know, when you're 20 years old and your wrist hurts, uh, you know your wrist isn't supposed to hurt at 20, so you go and you do wrist good things. Right? You, know, you go to the doctor, <laughs> perhaps you put a brace on. You do whatever uh, one should do to make your wrist better. If you're 75 years old and you've been given the mindset, the ex expectation that when you get older you just start falling apart, then when your wrist hurts, what do you do? You say, well, that's just part of getting older. And you don't take those steps to get better. And so eventually um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I think that we have ideas that when you're young, you're developing. And once you reach a certain point, you're no longer developing. You're just getting worse and worse. And I can think I, we need to change that. You know, there are ways that we should be growing throughout our lives. And I wanted to just uh, stop you right there, if I could, for a minute, because this is the crux to to me about the aging process. Is I'm there's a lot of interest now in in, in studying the aging process and how it affects psychological well being, and a group of people that I now work with talk about aging. They are a lot of older therapists that I'm involved yeah. with that say that they look at this period of their life as still uh, a growth period, that they don't look at right, being exactly. in their 80s or 90s as waiting for the graveyard. They still have, they have plans, they have desires, they have aspirations, they, they use their bodies, they use their minds, and consequently as a byproduct of continuing to use these operating systems, they are operating optimally. Right, exactly. And we have no, uh, no real way of knowing how long one can live this very healthy, vital life. You know, we only know that we have a host of mindsets that we bought into when we were younger that lead to our own demise, and we slow down, um, and then we assume, since so many people are doing it, that it's wired into the nervous system. And, and I'm just not that sure. You know, we have data that we collected <coughs> excuse me, about 30 years ago where we looked at old people and we found what their earliest experiences were growing up as well as they could remember. And then we just looked at people 
who lived with their grandmother when they were very little, let's say five years old, and we compared them to people who lived with their grandmothers when they were, uh, let's say, 12 years old. And the point is that the five-year-old is seeing a younger grandmother, a more vital person than the 12-year-old. Now, it turns out that for most of us, what it means to be old is who our grandparents are. Right? The word grandmother, grandfather means old. So the person who grew up with a, a snapshot, let's say, of a younger person who was supposed to be this old person, their grandparent, turns out that they age better themselves. Their expectations are that when you're old, you're vital. So they're more vital. It's really just that simple. So I was at this conference many, many years ago. I was very young. And I was going on about all that the old were capable of. And then I thought, well, gee, here I am. I'm 30 years old. I'm speaking to these people in their 60s. How do I know these things? Why do I believe it? <laughs> and then I realized that my grandmother was young. And she represented old to me. And then working backwards, I do the research and found support for it. Our expectations are crucial. When you believe you can't do something, you're not going to try to do it. When you believe you can't do something, even if you do try it with, you know, uh, only a half of an effort, and then it becomes self-fulfilling. And when you believe you can do something, you start to engage it, and that very process of trying to do it puts you on a journey that's good for your health, regardless of whether ultimately you get there or not. And we want to make sure that our mindsets don't stop us dead in our tracks. Because we can't know that there's something that we can't do. All we there can know are, is that... Yeah. Well, I was just going to... just I wanted to share with you two, two examples, because I think that listeners might find this interesting. There was a video that went viral probably about a year or so ago of a 90-some-odd-year-old woman who lived out on Fire Island, that every morning she got up and she did yoga. Her posture was perfect. There was no curvature of the spine. And from behind, she looked as though she were a young woman, say, in her, her 40s or 50s. And um, there was another example of this. And she's in her 90s, and she'd been practicing yoga her entire life since she was a young girl. Yeah. And that was struck me as an incredible role model. And about a year ago, I was skiing out at Wachusett Mount, Mountain out in Massachusetts, and there is a woman on the race team there. She's like 96 years old, and she comes out and she puts on her speed suit, and this chick is part of NASTAR, you yeah. know, the downhill racing yeah. team. And, you know, nobody right. told her she can't. Right, exactly. Now, yeah, I think number- that we, we have to see these examples as available to all of us, not that these are the unusual few. And, and right. things are starting to change, you know, that people who are in their 60s now are, are considered young, where years ago, you know, um, we were considered old. And as I said, 80 is now the new 60. So slowly, but, you know, if you're or someone you know is getting on in years, you don't have to wait until the culture says it's okay to go out and experiment and live a full life until your last breath. You know, you can begin it right now, and that's what we're trying to encourage people to do. People need to realize that life only consists of moments, and if you make the moments matter, then your life matters. And these moments are no different whether you're 20, 40, 80, or 100. Mm. 
So, so the moral of the story is to get out there and make those memories, to learn more about Dr. Ellen Langer and her incredible work on mindfulness. Uh, let me just list a few of your books, Dr. Langer, Mindfulness, The Power of Mindful Learning, On Becoming an Artist. We didn't touch upon that, well, so you have to come back again and talk about that. Okay. Re- and it's re- Reinventing Yourself Through Mindful Creativity. And the most recent book, of course, is Counter. Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility. To learn more about Dr. Langer's work, you can visit the LangerMindfulnessInstitute.com. On Twitter, she is at Ellen, J is in joy, L is in love, and on Facebook, Ellen Langer. And once again, the counterclockwise retreats will open in the spring of 2014. And I have a couple of parting thoughts before we go that I would love to share with you and that is that happiness is not a destination it cannot be bought sold or traded happiness will never invite you to the party happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion purpose place and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cyper's guest and my amazing guest today, Dr. Ellen Langer and Dr. Mario Martinez, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And I want to thank our producers that make us look great each and every week and shine out there in the ethers. Next week, we are talking about leadership and how it pertains to sustainable branding and the well-being of businesses. And we've got a great show lined up with Chip Conley and Larry Broughton. And you're sure to have a chuckle if you listen in. And of course, as always, these podcasts are free and available and our gifts to you on iTunes. We'll see you next week. And thank you, Dr. Langer. Thank you, Dr. Martinez. We will see you you again very soon. Bye. Nobody got no time anyway. Somehow. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free download.